Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented to you by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Callie Kaplan. Hello, Callie. Hello, Kevin. It's wonderful to see you today. Callie, it's wonderful to see you, too. I don't know that I can say that about the other two people on the podcast with us, but it is wonderful to see you, as always. Uh, That's very fair. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's fair. That's, a, that's hey, me. You know, always what? fair. <laughs> David, we haven't called on you yet, so you can't say anything. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. Jumped in. Cause, all right. So joining us now and his chance to re- rebut that uh, comment by Callie Kaplan, uh, David Moore. Hi, David. I can't really rebut it. It just stung. <laughs> you can't refute it. You can rebut it, but you can't refute it. That's the, that's that's the, the whole thing. imply and fur thing, right? You yeah, gotta, that's exactly you gotta right. You got to get it on the right end where it's coming exactly, from. Exactly, exactly. And also joining us today, Evan Grant, our old pal, our uh, West Texas Bureau, uh, who is who is telling anybody and everybody, he's flagging people oh down to say he oh. got 21 digital conversions. That means that 21 people signed up to take that, the, the Dallas one. Morning that's proprietary I, information. I don't think you actually, I don't think anybody podcast. really wants that out there in the public, Kevin. That's not quite public 21 domain. One conversion. <laughs> that's what, that's what it was. That's what Evan says. It, all I know is there is now a sign over Evan's lovely condo there in, uh, uh, just outside downtown me. I got 21 conversions on this. I like the sandwich board he made out of it that he can wear around. <laughs> I was going to say something nice about getting to see one of uh, the best columnists in Texas this weekend and spend some time with him. Um, and I really enjoyed seeing Kirk Bowles. And it was oh my gosh, that's a it shot. was nice. He welcomed me to Austin where we had we we, we had a nice conversation. Um, we Can talked about some other great columnists in Texas, like our friend Richard Justice. Um, he didn't bring you up, Kevin. No, no, not no. in the conversation. No, no, not, it was not, not in the conversation. conversation. But uh, I did get a good brunch in Austin, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're happy with that. I uh, got to take the stepdaughter out. I actually bought her an alcoholic beverage when she went to the game on uh, Saturday night with her friends. Yeah. And she's just so, 18, so that's great. So, so responsible. She's 22. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, she had, she had alcoholic beverages in each hand so she was enjoying oh herself God. at the texas wow. game and all i know is as texas was blowing a 19 point lead to tennessee i got a text from high up in the student section that said i'm having chest pains yeah well you should have called 911 at that point uh it's probably because of the uh the beverages you were pumping her full of caused yes, some kind of re- reaction completely so anyway no, Evan, we did have dinner at, at Medina uh, the, the other night uh, with our, our, our pal John Blake and then the, all the lovely spouses also went. It was uh, very nice. It was good food. Evan scheduled it, of course, uh, down there in the area where the Stars were playing that night. It was the Sergei Zuboff was getting his number retired. And so there was only like, oh, I don't know, four million people trying to get into downtown at the same time we were trying to go to dinner. I guess what made it difficult is apparently Vladimir Putin showed up for that. So um, yes. he really kind of ratcheted things up. He was the one with no shirt on that said the Z on it, on his chest. That it was, was, uh, that was Putin. I, I would say this. I, I really like Victory Park, but don't schedule dinner um, during <laughs> events down there because it's it's hard to park. Yeah, it is hard to park. We just left our cars in the street, just abandoned the cars, <laughs> and then and went in and eat. It was it was a little a little problematic getting our cars back uh you know but the, other than that it was fine yeah, everything was everything was really good all right that's enough of that talk uh so we had a big announcement uh just today as a matter of fact as we're taping this on tuesday morning uh, tom brady is officially retiring it is no longer just sources said tom says so himself on his instagram account uh, I'm getting he won't even have a press conference. He's just moving on now, kind of like Daniel Craig. Well, not like exactly like Daniel Craig moving on. That was that was a, a bomb of a different proportion uh, for him. I'm not going to be a spoiler here and ruin that for everybody in, in the James Bond saga. But at any rate, uh, Tom Brady is retired. Uh, you know, it's always interesting to me when you uh, you get a lot of feedback from readers and they're complaining about, uh, you know, whatever the local team is or local uh, players are. And you hear a lot from, about uh, Dak Prescott. Well, he's no Tom Brady. You know, it's like, well, that's that's exactly right. And neither is anybody else. Um, we can make the argument uh, that, uh, and I would, and my, both of my boys, we like to talk about these kinds of things. They were both quarterbacks. Uh, is that uh, Aaron Rodgers is probably a more talented, skilled 
quarterback from a physical skills point than Brady. Uh, he can just really spin it. Uh, but from pure preparation uh, to winning uh, to dedication, everything you want from the position, uh, I, you know, what argument is there about him being the greatest ever? David? Well, and yeah, I mean, that's it. He's He retires with more Super Bowl rings than any other franchise has accumulated. Um, and it, it is going to be fascinating because during this period, you, you look up and you talk about, well, Aaron Rodgers, he is arguably uh, a better uh, quarterback as far as playing the position, the skill level, the aesthetics of it. One title. Drew Brees, before he retired, what did he have? One title. Uh, you know, you know, Manning, Peyton Manning had to go deep into his career to get number two. Um, it, you know, Just as many Pat- as his brother Eli. Yeah, Pat, you know Patrick Mahomes, who everyone is is fascinated by and, and rightfully so and mesmerized by, he has taken Kansas City to the AFC Championship game in four consecutive years, all at home, and has one Super Bowl title to show for it now after losing to Cincinnati over this past weekend. So um, it just reinforces – if you are Mahomes, Josh Allen, and Buffalo um, – Dak Prescott, to, to some other standpoint, you know, Justin Herbert, uh, the L.A., if, you know, Kyler Murray, Arizona. Isn't this a huge weight lifted off your shoulders? Don't you feel like, oh, okay, well, this this field really is wide open now. This is, uh, I, I can, you know, I can work my way in here, and, and it's not just about getting one. Uh, maybe I can get two or three and, and, and be, um, you know, again, there's a vacuum now as far as, as uh, Lombardi winning quarterbacks in place. And, and I think it's going to be a pretty interesting scramble uh, because you have turned over when you look at his retirement, um, you know, Drew Brees. Uh, you, you've had some, some heavy hitters retire here uh, over the last three to four years. You really are seeing a changing of the guard at the top of the quarterback scale. Yeah, what's interesting about it to me is that these guys were able to play so long so well. You know, we you know, we we grew up with quarterbacks and you know, we watched Joe Namath go off to the Rams, we watched, you know, uh Johnny Unitas go off to the Chargers, we watched Joe Montana go off to the Chiefs, and you know, when they got there, they were, you know, clearly well past their prime, you know. And and those guys were all in their mid to late thirties when that happened. And uh and Brady played great until he was 44. I mean, the, the last game he played, it wasn't his fault that they lost. I mean, he did he did what Tom Brady does. He took them right back down the field and they scored. It wasn't his fault, you know, that uh, that the, the Rams and Matt Stafford were able to, to, to pull that game out of the fire at the very end. He did everything he was supposed to do. I, I'm sure that factored into his thinking about retiring now. You know, I, I did my part, you know, and then he – plus – he won the Super Bowl with another franchise that was anywhere close to that. Well, uh, but I mean, the, so I, there's, I, there's no, well, I just want to say one more thing that there's no argument that, well, it was all right. So who was it? Was it Bill Belichick or was it Tom Brady? Well, it was Tom Brady. Well, there's no argument whether it was Bill Belichick or Tom Brady. It was Tom Brady. And there's no argument whether it's Tom Brady or anybody else. I mean, we, we can go around other sports and you can have these conversations. I know of at least one bloviating blowhard who's made a career out of the whole LeBron versus Michael Jordan argument about the greatest ever. Um, there's not a debate really on, on the greatest quarterback ever. I, it, it might be a good debate now but, uh, over who's second best. But uh, the other thing that I mean stands out for me about Brady is uh, you referenced Peyton Manning going to Denver and winning a Super Bowl in Denver. And I would say that in large part, the Broncos won in spite of his performance that year rather than anything that he did to really lead them to the Super Bowl champion, the Super Bowl title. I think if Brady had come back next year, you're still talking about Tom Brady being a top six quarterback in, in the league. Um, so I, I, I think the only thing to say is, you know, we tend to look at the greatest ever um, in all these historical lights and, and, and maybe that they were guys that we never saw. Um, we just saw the greatest ever and Tom Brady uh, play quarterback for, for nearly two decades. And um, I think that the, we should just appreciate that. Do you find, do you find it interesting at all? I was just going to say, and I think it's like a, what a, a 10, a 10 segment, you know, goodbye on, on, on Instagram with the different posts. Never mentioned new England in there. No, did anyone I did not. else find that interesting? 
I don't think he mentioned uh, New England by name or any players by name. Either. He did not. He no. talked about Tampa Bay, which is he did, fitting, which is where he's retiring from, and and mentioned players and and Bruce Arians and and his time in Tampa Bay. No mention of his time in New England. Yeah. Very bitter, very bitter. He's a bitter man. He's, he's retiring a bitter man. Yeah, he's retiring a bitter man. Look what he's going home to now. It's like, you know, when, when players always say, oh, I want to spend more time with my family, this is the one guy we might actually believe when he says he'd like to spend more time with his family. Um, I, I will say uh, the thing that, uh, and Evan, you would appreciate this as a baseball guy, uh, the thing that struck me about Tom Brady, and I wanted this to segue into what we're going to talk about next, is that uh, he reminds me so much of Mariano Rivera, who was just a perfectionist at every time that Mar- Mariano Rivera stepped on the field is like, okay, lights out. That's it. Game's over. Uh, and when they were playing the Marlins in the world series and he turned and made that throw into center field when he was trying to pick off somebody at second base. Uh, and, and I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, it's a crack in the armor here. They're going to lose because Mariano Rivera has just made a mistake. And that's, and that's what Tom Brady was, that he just didn't make mistakes. And, and that was going to lead us into the discussion we're going to have a little bit now about the playoffs in the, in the AFC and NFC championship games in which we saw the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, who was, would be the heir apparent to the greatest quarterback in the league once, uh, uh, you know, now that Brady is gone and once Aaron Rodgers is gone. Uh, and up 21-3 to early in the first half, and and they blow the game and and they lose and we saw in that game uh, there were snippets of things that we saw in midseason when the when the Chiefs imploded and looked so bad at least until they played the Cowboys and then they looked like their old selves again which kind of teams did against the Cowboys this year so um, what did we think about the uh, the conference championship games Callie did you get to watch any of the either one of those. In fact, no. I watched the Mavericks lose to the Magic instead. Um, so <laughs> oh my who's gosh. the real winner here? <laughs> oh, no kidding. Oh, what, a, what a lousy game to watch there. There was a, the, the 10 and 40 Magic we should probably add on the, that. Now 11 and 40. <laughs> now 11 and 40, yeah, exactly. That was miserable. Yeah, those games were uh, were uh, kind of just added to this whole uh, postseason. It's been unbelievable the the quality of these games, at least from the at least from the standpoint that they're competitive. I don't know how the quality of the games. It's striking to me how little offense is being played in these playoffs. Uh, you know, you're having all these games decided in the in the teens and the low twenties, uh, but at least they are they are fun to watch. Uh, and uh, in that particular game. Joe Burrow may be making the case, and I've seen this people saying this before that maybe Joe Burrow is the next Tom Brady. Uh, he's already nobody the, is the next Tom Brady. Well, I, mean, I, I get that he's not the next Tom Brady, but maybe he he is the the guy that is the most similar to him. Look, look he is the guy. Maybe right the now. next Joe Namath. Yeah, maybe the next Joe Namath. I think yeah, so. We'll, he has a little we'll, Joe Namath to him. We'll see if he looks as if he got a pantyhose in his uh, future. Um, but he, like, Callie, that's an old person commercial reference from yeah. early 1970s. So well, just you know, disregard. There is history. Go with it. There's okay. there's such a thing as history, Evan, that people have to respect. You know, stuff that happened. And you're part of it before you were born. Uh, is that Joe Burrow could be the first person ever uh, to win a uh, Heisman? a national title in, in college football, and then a Super Bowl. Uh, no one's ever done that. Uh, I, I'm not even sure that anyone has ever done the first two and appeared in a Super Bowl. Uh, I think that maybe I, I need to double-check that one. But uh, I know that the, the the former is true. So uh, I, I, I don't know how much of that game was Joe Burrow just being, wow, look what he did. Uh, he, he did keep the, his team in there. Uh, he is pretty unflappable. Uh, and he has built a pretty good case with Jamar Chase. But here's the thing about the Bengals, David, that I want to ask you about uh, watching them. During the course of that broadcast, Tony Romo said, this is a below average offensive line, below average. And here they are. They're in the Super Bowl. We complained all year long. like, wow, the Cowboys, if they could just get this left guard figured out, you know, they could uh, – What's Dak supposed to do? Well, Joe Burrow took a team with a below-average offensive line to the Super Bowl. So what does that say about the Cowboys and their offense? Well, I thought, very quickly, I thought Burrow enduring nine sacks in the divisional round yeah. game to to still be upright and make plays late in that game to take that beating and still make the plays you need 
to win a playoff game was pretty impressive. And, and that's one thing. I, I think you saw, you know, Dak is not the same from a run standpoint as he was before the injury. Um, you know, the, the Cowboys, I, I believe, addressing the offensive line is their top priority this offseason, and, and that's what will happen. I know you're talking real quick about the, those games. We want to talk a little bit more about the Cowboys. But, you know, I was struck by – there's this – as in all sports, right, the, the, the debate on analytics and, and, you know, how you weigh that versus intuition and, and your feel for the moment with these coaches and everything – and, and I felt Kansas City's disdain for a field goal <laughs> at the end of the first half was significant. Um, you know, you're up 21 to three, and rather than just sit there and go, okay, we have a field goal out of this. If we don't score, let's take it and go into the half and, and be up by, you know, 21 instead of 18. Uh, it was just almost dismissed. It's like, oh, well, you're in here. Let's do it. Let's go. I, I think that's some arrogance. I think that's some, I think you're seeing more and more decisions like that being made. And I find it very interesting because if you go through the playoffs, what we're winning these playoff games, field goals, field goal kickers were winning these games. And uh, look, to me, this isn't an either or debate on analytics and it's, it's part of the equation, but I don't know that you just weigh to it because each game is different, right? Uh, You know, the, the, they're moving parts to a game that lead up. And I'll say very quickly at the end, I was also mystified by Kansas City's approach where they got some big plays quickly. Cincinnati had to start burning timeouts, and clearly Kansas City was playing for the last score of regulation because they didn't want to give Joe Burrow the ball back, which I think speaks to very quickly you know, the presence he has created. But my problem on that is with about a minute left, they were out of timeouts, and you still saw Kansas City doing things that didn't make sense. It was just placeholding on the field to run the clock down. Don't you want to score there, go up by four, and then force the other team with no timeouts to drive all the way down and win with a touchdown, not a field goal? And Burrow had done a lot getting them in position for field goals, but not for touchdowns. So I think I really think Kansas City outsmarted itself at the end of both halves, and that cost them. Well, they certainly outsmarted themselves at the end of the game when they were in position to win it, and – Mahomes scrambled himself almost right out of field goal range. So a 17-yard um, sack, and he fumbled that ball yeah, too. Yeah. They, you know, yeah, that was so, that was a, a miserable type of, of ending to that. Well, and and I, I want to say to, to David's point about the the uh, field goals. I remember I, in this conversation with Babe Laufenberg one time. It's it's like when you got a lead and you got a chance to pile up points on that, especially if you got a big lead, you just pile up the points. Uh, you just you go ahead and take the field goal here. Yes. That's, that you just take all the points when they come to you, especially when you're. And it's a one. It's one thing when you're, you know, if you're behind or if it's close or whatever, and you know the position is and and where you're playing. Those are all factors that come in to to making those kind of decisions. But when you're at home and and you got a chance just to pile up more points, you just pile up the points. Uh, it's as simple as that. I think all of these this talk and analytics. Uh, the problem for me in an- analytics and NFL. I know we've talked about that before. Is that there are 16 games. That's not. We'll talk about a small sample size or 17 games. You know, they're, they're 17 games. Now, so it's a, it's too small of a sample size to say we're going to go. This is what the numbers say. Well, I, I know you can say that, but these are it's not like baseball where you got 162 games for these things to, to work this way out. You know, uh, when you've only got 17, I just think that they're they're flawed. And then the other, the other thing I'd like to say is that, man, Sean McVay is a great coach, but he needs to work on his uh, whoever in the, in the booth is telling him to go ahead and challenge <laughs> this play. Like, holy cow, there was no way Matthew Stafford had gotten that first down that he challenged on a loss that one timeout. So, I mean, he's just throwing timeouts out the window as he's going down the field. Uh, It was just phenomenal in that game. And that's the kind of thing that would have gotten Mike McCarthy roasted. But uh, but Sean McVay's a genius, so it it didn't happen. Uh, Speaking of Mike McCarthy and getting roasted. Yes, uh, we did have in the uh, the other day, we had an explanation. And David actually talked to Jerry Jones, which is always a dizzying kind of thing uh, to do, uh, to talk to Jerry. Uh, Jerry. He talked to Jerry Friday, in which Jerry explained the whole process and that he was not actually leaving Mike McCarthy twisting in the wind, that it was all a ploy to get people 
to, well, David, I can't even explain it. You, you try <laughs> to explain to me exactly what uh, Jerry meant by all that stuff and what it meant in bringing Dan Quinn back. Well, no, I, I mean, before David sets it up, let's just, I mean, before he explains it, let's just set it up that the hard part for everybody to believe is that this was some brilliant strategic maneuver on Jerry's part to somehow keep Dan Quinn here by placing his head coach in the public domain in even more jeopardy. Um, and I have two questions on this. Explain the strategy. And number two, how are we not going to be on Mike McCarthy firing watch from day one of training camp? We'll go to door number two first. We are on Mike McCarthy firing watch from the start of training camp. <laughs> Going over to one, Jerry, I'm just laying it out as best I can from what Jerry said. Jerry's rationale uh, for this was he said it was uh, strategically done because if it appeared to be a fluid situation with the Cowboys coaching staff, then other teams wouldn't have the information or particularly know what Dallas wanted to do. So that gave Dallas somewhat of a competitive or time edge to work through what they wanted to, which was feverishly working behind the scenes to make sure that Dan Quinn was back. Now, that is what he said. If you want my belief on what happened here is one week earlier, I'll do this briefly as I can. Jerry was very upset after the game and, and spoke about his frustration of losing to San Francisco. Two days after that, he goes to John Madden's funeral in California and is around all these people from the glory days telling all the great stories about Madden and all the time they had together. Most of those stories had to do with the Cowboys Super Bowl run in the 90s. Uh, so Jerry is even more becomes even more frustrated and down over what this team just failed to do comes back, has an interview five days after the game last two weeks ago, and talks again, and that is when he leaves Mike McCarthy twisting in the wind. Um, so that happens. Then you go fast forward three, four days, Sean Payton retires. Now suddenly, what happened was he, he already left Dan, you know, Mike McCarthy twisting. Then people start going, well, heck, if you're going to lose Dan Quinn, just make him the head coach. Then on top of that, you have Sean Payton you know, riding to the rescue on the horizon and and his infatuation with Sean. So now suddenly this got out of control. And and what you had, and my belief is my conversations with Jerry last week were Jerry, the marketer of the Cowboys, wanted to show the fans that he felt their pain and was sympathizing with them and felt it wasn't the time to say, oh, yeah, Mike McCarthy's coming back. He felt it was better to say, oh, I feel your pain. I'm as frustrated as you. Let's look at everything here. I'm not taking anything off the table. And then Jerry, the general manager, the next week had to determine how to come in and clean it up. And he determined to go with this story about it was strategic. So okay, very quickly, this, this isn't the first time that, that Jerry, the general manager, has had to come in and clean up what Jerry, the a marketer said, and, and that's why that's why you always have this this high sense of ambiguity on on uh, the around the Cowboys. I'm going to say that that was as well done as you possibly could. I'm still going to say it's a bunch of gobbledygook. <laughs> Bullsh. Is that what and, you're doing? Yeah. And I, I mean, my conspiracy theory is basically this: Jerry's got the best of both worlds here right now uh, in a bad situation. Kevin, you talked to the whole idea that Jerry doesn't really want to fire guys and fire them early. Uh, citing the Chan Gailey experience. I, I feel like in Dan Quinn's situation, there was maybe one, maybe two jobs out there that offered any degree of attractiveness, and that would be Denver and maybe Minnesota. And when it became clear that he wasn't going to get the Denver job, um, his best option was to come back here because Dan Quinn, uh, for as great a job as he did with the Cowboys this year, and as having taken the Falcons to a Super Bowl, he's still going to get one more head coaching job. And you're not going to tie yourself to Jacksonville or Miami or the New York Giants right now in what amounts to basically a, a career suicide move uh, just to say you're, in a, you're a head coach again. I think the best situation for him all along was going to be remain defensive coordinator here with a pretty good defense that may very well get better next year and potentially put yourself in position to either ascend to the head coaching job at the Dallas Cowboys or get a better head coaching opportunity with a team next year. 
No, I, I wouldn't argue with any of that. There's no question that it's better for him to come back here. You know, you you, you don't want to, as you said, and uh, Dan Quinn. Although these co- coaches get recycled an awful lot, and we we can have a whole podcast full of that. Um, but um, there's no question that why would you want to go to one of some of those other places? And and I, you know, you can see what happened to Matt Rule uh, going to Carolina. Uh, you know, he's already fans were dissatisfied with him. He, he just just got there. I think we're seeing that more and more now is that uh, fans are more impatient. And why wouldn't you be after this year, you're watching the Bengals go to the Super Bowl. My gosh, you know, who was, who had the Bengals in their uh, preseason picks? I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. So now that will just ratchet up the pressure on everybody else. It ought to ratchet up the pressure on the Cowboys. I'm sure that when Jerry looks at that, he thinks, my gosh, you know, how did the Bengals get there two years ago? They won two games, you know, they, they won four games last year. So it's just phenomenal what they've been able to do there and turn that that organization around. And some of it is a little bit. Everything went a little bit crazy in football in the NFL this year. So yeah, I and I mean they won four games last year, but Burrow also missed the majority of the season. So I mean that was an X factor. Um, yeah, and the other part on Quinn that makes sense. Yeah, and the other part on Quinn, real quick, just to amplify what Evan was saying was, you know, most people thought he was going to go to Denver when Hackett got Nathaniel Hackett got that job and he didn't go. You can go from the hot candidate to, you know, let, let's play this out. Let's say he didn't get two or three other jobs. He interviewed for five jobs and turned down an interview with Jacksonville. Now, now let's say going into next year, what if an owner goes, well, yeah, I really like Dan Quinn, but boy, five teams passed him over last year. What's wrong with him? You know, you have to have an awareness of where you are and, and how you're being perceived. And it did Dan Quinn no favors to stay in the head coaching carousel for jobs he may not have wanted, one, or two, he definitely wasn't going to get because that would only tarnish uh, the the availability and the idea that he's a hot commodity. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem like that, that Jerry had these kind of thoughts about Kellen Moore either, about protecting him. Uh, he's still out there, you know, talking to anybody. <laughs> basically, well. anybody who, who walks by, Kellen's talking to him. So, uh, anyway, good luck with I that. I believe it was, yeah, I've got a great coordinator in Dan Quinn, and then there's you, Kellen Moore. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to move over now and talk about the Mavericks and uh, and Kelly. Uh, I mean, uh, Kelly, Kelly, we we are expecting that maybe this week there will be some news about senior Luka moment, Kelly. You got to you got to roll with it, <laughs> Kelly, Kelly. I've gotten way know. worse before, so don't worry, Kevin. It's all well, good. me too. I get called Kelvin, <laughs> Kevin, all kinds of Kerwin, Kerwin. Kerwin, that's a that's Richard Justice's favorite name for me. So, Kelly, you do think that something's going to happen with uh, Luka Doncic this week? I do think something's going to happen, and that is that he will be named an all-star for the third straight season. Pretty cool. Uh, now, we've uh, we've had Mavericks here. And I'm going to stipulate what exactly is the difference. We have never had a Maverick named an all-star starter three years in a row. Is that correct? Correct. And this year, Luca did not do that because Steph Curry and John Moran were the selections for the West. Yeah. And so do you have any idea about his feelings about that? Does it, did that bother him at all? Um, to a degree. I think he was a little upset that he didn't get any media votes, which I know is a big talker on Twitter, especially because I was one of the voters. But when you look at his season as a whole, um, and I talked to Luca about this too, it's I went with um, Steph Curry because Steph is having a Steph year and that's always going to be a natural lock. And I went with Devin Booker because I felt like the best team in the West that has only lost nine games all season, basically the opposite of the Magic, who the Mavs lost to uh, on Sunday. I felt like they, like a showcase of greatness, deserved to have the greatest team in the league this season represented. And Luca's missed 15 games. He didn't show up in his best shape. He has played injured through most of the first two and a half months of the season. But you look at him now, the last four weeks, I understand why fans are like more recency biased because he has played like an all-star starter. He's has triple doubles like every other game. He's shooting a little bit better from the field and just, you know, kind of finding his rhythm more across the board. And so I think that there's no doubt he'll be an all-star starter or an, excuse me, an all-star reserve this week when the coaches select it. But um, I think that he's going to move past it pretty quick because once the game tips off in T- Cleveland, when you're playing, it doesn't matter necessarily that you were out there from the start or that you subbed in, you know, in the first rotation. 
So I want to ask you about this uh, situation with Luca, and we've had for the first time in his very brief, brilliant career that uh, he got some public criticism that came from Reggie Miller on the on the TNT broadcast when he uh, said that well he's just out of shape, you know, he showed up out of shape. He, they talked about how heavy he was, and obviously not explosive, and uh, it was more than just well he's had a bad ankle or he's had COVID or whatever. You know, these were natural excuses, but those were not natural excuses. And he's gotten a little bit of criticism this year. And then he was not named a starter on the team because you didn't vote for him. And uh, <laughs> so we, we had all those things happen. to him. Does he take these things to me? This is what great players do. They take these things and they use them as fodder. And they say, look, I'm going to show everybody now that I am a top five player and uh, I am no different from the guy I was last year, the year before that, when I was considered this ascending superstar. Uh, do you think he actually takes those things and uses them? And that might be motivating him to be playing the way he is now. Or it was just a natural course of events that eventually he was going to end up playing like he is because this is, this is who he is. So I would like to clarify first that even if Luca had gotten all like 90 some media votes, he still would not have been an all-star starter because he finished outside the top two in fan voting and in player voting. So it's pretty much oh, a moot point. Sure, Everybody sure. can take Go their, ahead, Callie. Say, their say Twitter that. outrage elsewhere um, <laughs> if they would like. It's it's fine if they want to keep filling my mentions. Um, but yeah, in terms of Luca, I think it's a little bit of both. I think you never want to get COVID and it's never like a, a good thing as we enter almost year three of doing this. However, I think the timing was good and that it allowed him five extra games to get his ankles right. Cause he was going to come back December 23rd after missing five games to kind of take a break off his ankles. And he's going to come back then tested positive for COVID the day before. And so he had like two, basically two extra weeks where he was one able to get his ankles healthy and two able to get his conditioning up because he didn't show up in his best shape and whether or not the like just downright critical nature of Reggie Miller was totally correct. I don't know. I don't know exactly where his conditioning was. He doesn't have the body type that's going to look ripped and is going to look like, you know, a freak of nature, uh, even when he is in his best shape. Yeah. I but, know. yeah there we go but i will say that that criticism on top of having you know 10 games where his symptoms for covid were mild so i think he was able to kind of get his conditioning up and get his ankles right and, and keep kind of going on that trajectory that he was i think that helped a lot and then i think you know he hears everything he's on social media he's 22 he's not gonna you know, hear criticism and be like, ah, okay. Like that is going to fuel it. And I think especially lately, even after he didn't get picked as an all-star starter, he absolutely dominated Indiana and Orlando, which isn't necessarily the toughest thing to do, but it was for the rest of the Mavericks um, on Sunday night in Orlando. And so I think we could kind of see that, you know, that edginess that he's shown over the years kind of come out more. And I mean, I think that's a good thing for the Mavericks. It's just at this point, a matter of whether his teammates can match it. Which has always been hard. It would be hard for me to see a guy miss a third of his team's games and be considered one of the two best at his position at that point in time. And and so, I don't think there's any surprise that he didn't miss that he didn't make the All Star starting lineup. But and I think you guys have alluded to this, right? It's not about him making the All Star starting lineup. It's about him taking this team deeper into the playoffs than they've been. And so if he does that, that's what's going to matter. And to Callie's point, the fact that he is in better shape now, the fact that he is starting to dominate, the fact that he is healthy, those are I think those should be the things that are that are most important about Luka Doncic's first half. Yeah, and I think when you talk about if he's if that's what great players do, I think we'll get that answer one in the playoffs to see if he again can, you know, reach that level that he has the last two years and it really hinges on whether Kristaps Porzingis and the rest of his teammates, whoever they may be after the trade deadline, which I think will be the same core, whether they can match that. And then it'll also hinge on when he comes into training camp next year, is he in shape? Because this is the second year in a row that we're talking about Luca's conditioning. It lasted a lot longer this season. And I think the mark of whether Luke is going to be, you know, one of those top of the line, top five players year in, year out is going to hinge on whether he can start seasons well, because two of the last three years he has not. You can make a mistake one time as a young player. Um, 
you, if you do it twice, you just have bad conditioning habits. And that was, I, I think that was the rap that Elvis Andrus eventually got when he was looked at as going to be a really a star young shortstop. And then he went a whole offseason and didn't throw. And, you know, when you do those kinds of things, you better learn from it. And so, I mean, the, the, I think the real test, Cali, as to what you said, is how does Luca respond to this with, with his next offseason? Uh, so, Kelly, I want to ask you now, that leads us to the uh, um, the trade front and the question of the, the deadline, which is approaching February the 10th. Um, and uh, so what, are the, what do the Mavericks do at this point? Because um, not only uh, you you do have, on this one hand, the fact that Luca is playing better and playing like we expect him to play. Uh, on the other hand, uh, and, and after watching the team play so well defensively and kind of reshape their whole image uh, in the NBA – now, once again, after Timmy Hardaway goes down uh, with a, a foot injury that's going to keep him out until May, probably, uh, Chris Tasperzingas is out with a bulky knee. First of all, give us an update on his knee. And then secondly, how do you think that's going to impact what the Mavericks might like to do at the trade deadline? Yeah, your guess on Kristaps Porzingis is as good as mine at this point. Jason Kidd does not really reveal too much about injuries and um, he got he left the game on Saturday night in the second quarter. They flew right to Orlando, and Kid said he didn't talk to KP once they got to Orlando because it was a quick back-to-back. So we'll hear from him, and I'll ask him um, in about an hour at practice if there's any sort of update. Um, so I, I really have no idea if this is a one-time thing where it's you know his knee tightened up and he didn't want to keep playing or if it's something that's going to be a little more concerning for the, for the next week or so. Um, so on that front, that's all I know at this point. However, I, I just don't see them being able to make any sort of move that's going to be impactful enough to justify kind of breaking up what they have right now. Because if you're not going to trade Luca, which they're not going to trade Luca, if you're not going to trade KP, which you'd be getting pennies on the dollar for at this point, especially considering that, you know, this knee thing may linger a little bit. Your best two assets are Jalen Brunson and Dorian Finney-Smith, who are great players in their own right for the roles that they're asked to play right now. However, their contracts are so small that anything that you can match them with without adding more players into the mix or adding draft picks, which the Mavs don't have a first rounder to trade until 2027 at this point, you're not going to be able to get the same return to what they provide you right now. Um, Jalen Brunson's making less than $2 million. Dorian Finney-Smith's making $4 million. Any sort of like bigger name trade acquisition that could either boost your offense or could kind of be that next pillar to build around in the future isn't going to be able to match up with those salaries. And so then you're going to have to maybe include a Maxi Kleber or somebody that also has a, a little bit of value, but Tim Hardaway Jr. is now not really in that mix uh, with his contract number. And so I see it really difficult and it's going to have to be something, a really nuanced move for them to be able to kind of make a trade work given what the assets they have are worth uh, contract wise versus what they provide on the court. All right, I'm going to go around real quickly here. And I mean, when I say quickly, it doesn't mean I get to talk for five minutes about any of this stuff. We're going to go around the panel here. Do you think the Mavericks will make a move before the deadline uh, that will add a starter to the team? Not, I'm not talking about Goran Dragic being, being signed afterwards and just going to sit on the bench next to Luka and telling stories about the old country. Uh, I, mean, I mean, how many of us think they will make a move? This is a yes or no question. We'll start with Evan. Evan. Major move? No. No. David. Well, I think back to 1978 when <laughs> No. I I see a move for a role player, not for a starter. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Callie, what do you think? No. I don't no. think they have the kind of like I just said. So Yeah, I, I, I don't think they were going to do it before uh KP got hurt again uh and and before Hardaway uh, that might have ramped it up a little bit with Hardaway out, but then now with KP it's like a, you know, just one more example of no, you just can't, you can't be risking stuff on this. Just, on this I just don't think they're in position to go out and get a, a, another game changer at this point. I don't think that no. that, that 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 opportunity exists for them. No, Hardaway's injury just makes it. I mean that that really ties their hands even more in my mind. Yeah, it's tough. All right, that's going to do it for our math segment. Now we're going to move on to what Evan likes to call the me segment, uh, and it is about uh, we have Evan. Got a, a, a twin boondoggle. He got to go first of all to Lubbock, and then he got to go to Austin, and then I think he I, he squirreled a deal. I, listen, I need to go to Las Vegas to see what the odds makers are saying about this up close and personal. I, I need and I need about I don't know four nights out there 
to do that. Meanwhile, the rest of us can't go anywhere because because of Evan's travel budget, which is just out of control. So anyway, Evan did. I'm just kidding, of course. Evan did a fabulous job on his uh, Texas Tech, uh, Texas basketball, the return of Chris Beard to Lubbock. We hope that uh, he's wearing Kevlar to the game. It's going to be really uh, ugly uh, and uh, and it, it's, it ratchets this whole rivalry between Texas Tech and Texas. Texas doesn't consider it a rivalry. Texas Tech does. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun out there Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night as we're taping this on Tuesday morning. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're if you not a huge college basketball fan or a moderate college basketball fan or even a serious college basketball fan, if you watch one game this year, I mean, I, I think it would be a really fun game to watch tonight um, at 8 o'clock on ESPN. I, I was um, – I, I you could feel in talking to people in Lubbock how much uh, anticipation they've got for this game and how much it has been marked on the calendar – from the day Chris Beard left. Um, and, and I think that what Kirby Hokett said uh, in relation to this, the tech, SI, the tech athletic director, that, you know, if, if Chris had left anywhere, had left here and gone anywhere else, it would have been celebrated. But there are certain things you can't do, and you can't leave Texas Tech for Texas. Um, and I think that's exactly how people feel there. And we saw we saw Texas, how Texas was greeted on social media last night in Lubbock when they arrived. Fans surrounded the bus. <laughs> they flipped Chris Beard off. They had a chant that sounded a lot like truck. Um, uh, and it, it's going to be intense, and it should be intense. Uh, the, the one thing I hope is it doesn't get ugly. You know, I it, it can turn ugly real quick. I, I, I think there's... I think fans have every ability and every right to to really make a home court advantage, and that's something that, that Lubbock really takes a pride in, in large respect due to Chris Beard and due to where he took this program from to where it was when he left. But uh, let's let's hold the line at getting really, really personal um, at, at throwing stuff. I don't know that uh, my words are going to really rant, tamp anything down. But I'm all for a really intense night there. What I don't get, Kevin, is how much I, – I, I think you've got more institutional knowledge of this than I do, and that is just the actual level of, of sports hate that Tech has always held for the University of Texas and their athletic teams. Uh, yeah, well, I want to talk about that in just a second. But first, I want to say that the, the big problem for this is that if Chris Beard had not been successful at uh, Texas Tech, if he had not taken them to the Final Four in the championship game, uh, uh, Tech fans would have said, fine, go to Texas if you want to. You know, uh, But when someone has done that and taken you so far, and you've fallen so deeply in love with them because of that, and then they leave you, well, then the hurt is a lot worse. So that's that's the number one thing, I think. And the added layer of the fact that Beard had he wasn't a complete mercenary, right? He had spent ten years at tech. Well, I mean, no, he spent longer than that at tech. I think he spent fifteen years at, at tech as an assistant and as, uh, no, uh, he was only there for a decade. Account. He was only was that, there from 01 to eleven. Is that what it was? I thought yeah. I saw a tweet from him where he said it was longer than that. But he yeah, he spent a long time out there. So uh and I made the mistake of writing, why would you leave Texas Tech, where you're beloved, where you will, they will name streets and children and pets and, and everything else after you. And uh, you can be there for the rest of your life. And it's, you know, you've obviously proven you can win there. You've taken that team to the Final Four. So, so what is better about Texas? Well, I mean, you know, there were two things that factored into that. One, yeah, you can, you can recruit big-time uh, recruits right out of high school. He was getting a lot of transfer uh, kids at uh, Texas Tech, and so that makes it that's different. But that's the, also the the landscape that we have in college athletics now is the portal. If you're not mining the transfer portal, you're an idiot, you know. And that's one of the reasons why Gary Patterson is out at TCU because he didn't uh, didn't like it. Well, you can not like it or not like it, but you have to take advantage of it. Uh, at Texas, he can sign top recruits right out of high school, so th- th- maybe that was more attractive to him. And secondly, it's his alma mater. You know, that's that's where he went to school. So it's a little bit like the situation that happened in the 80s. And I believe it was 1986 
when David McWilliams, who had gone to Texas, played on Daryl Royal's teams, uh, was Darryl, one of Daryl's favorite players, uh, left after a long career as an assistant at Texas, went to uh, Texas Tech, uh, and, and then after a year as Texas Tech's football coach and doing a pretty good job, uh, he, he went back to Texas. Well, you know, uh, for a long time, there was what was called a, a gentleman's agreement in the Southwest Conference that we're not going to be, uh, you know, hiring coaches from the other, other schools. They, they won't come directly from one school to the next. They might leave Texas Tech, go to Ole Miss, and they could come back to, you know, to uh, uh, Rice. But that's not going to – but it's not going to work if you go directly from a uh, Southwest Conference school to another one. Well, the David McWilliams thing was kind of a violation of that. Um, there, were, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories back then about wh- what was exactly happening there, that uh, even the athletic director, Texas athletic director, was part of that and because he had been at Texas and he set the whole thing up just so – uh, David could have a year as a head coach and they knew they were going to end up firing Fred Akers at Texas. And it was, it was all ridiculous. I don't think any of that was the case. I think he went out there, thought he was going to be uh, the head coach there for a while, but it's his alma mater, you know, and, and when Bear Bryant left uh, Texas A&M to go to Alabama, what did he say? Well, when mama calls, you got to go. And everybody said, Oh, that is so great. And so sweet. And so, you know, you didn't hear people complaining about that, but when Chris Beer goes to Texas, then people go nuts. You know, it's difficult for, for Texas, uh, and I'm not going to, you know, empathize with the whole situation. I didn't go to Texas. I, you know, everybody thinks that every journalist in the state, you know, went there. Um, uh, when when you have so many primary rivals just in one state, everybody's uh, most hated rival in Texas is Texas. Uh, and so uh, Texas' attitude is that we really don't care. You know, we we really have a thing with Oklahoma a and probably second, you know, uh, kind of a distant second to Oklahoma at that. And then everybody else, I ah, get in line. We don't care uh, what, what you think about us. So it is a, a much bigger deal at Texas Tech. I think it's a, you know, a little bit of a cultural thing, uh, feeling like, you know, uh, you people think you're better than us. That that whole uh, that whole thing, there is that, you know, uh, what is the, the Texas slogan now? You go there to the games, you know, what starts here, you know, ends of the world. I don't know, something crazy like that. Uh, but that is part of the situation in all of that. And uh, I think what makes it even better for tech fans is that Mark Adams, who was uh, Chris's assistant, was named the head coach uh, there at Tech. And he's done a marvelous job. He was his defensive coordinator, essentially. He's done a great job uh, with that out there and continued to, to do what Chris did, uh, and and who knows how far they go with all of that. And, and you know, Chris, uh, and Mark Adams is a great story for that matter. I, what is he? He's he. How, how old is Mark? He's like yeah. So that, I mean, that's the one right? thing I didn't want to. I, I didn't want this segment to get by with is not some reference to Mark Adams, but he's the perfect guy for Tech, right? He is a he is born and bred in West Texas. He graduated from Texas Tech. He spent his literally his whole life basically in West Texas. And here he is at 65. This is actually his second Division One coaching opportunity because he had had one at uh, UT Pan American, which is now UT Rio Grande Valley um, in the late 90s. But uh, Tech needed, and, and you and I have talked a little bit about this, Kevin, I think in the last couple of hires that Tech has made, and I'm going to write something about Joey McGuire and their football program for, for tomorrow's paper, but in both of those hires, neither one of them considered really "quote unquote" sexy hires. Tech got people that they feel like want to be at Texas Tech; that it is a destination for them. And I think that there is some level uh, in the tech fan psyche that has been created over the last decade or two that this has simply been a stepping stone program for coaches, and that's how coaches have viewed it. Uh, and I think they're 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 hoping to change that with these next two hires. Yeah, I don't know how much I agree with that. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell people how they, what they feel is wrong. I do think that you know that listen, the coaches just move on. That's just what they do. Uh, I don't, and I think that if you're not at a you know a top five destination, you got an opportunity to go there. That that's what you're going to do. That's what coaches do. So I don't think they should take it so personally, frankly. Uh, so that's going to do it for our podcast today. We uh, thank everybody for tuning in. But before we get out of here, Evan Grant wants to say one thing here about. Uh, an old pal of ours who is calling it quits. Why do you spoil my leads? 
Well, because some, you know, the, let me just say this. They're spoiled when they show up. Okay. So what I was going to say is that in the last month, we've seen the, uh, the retirements of two of uh, America's great sports columnists. Uh, last night, Mark Wicker from the Orange County Register and the Southern uh, California News Group announced his retirement. Mark had spent a little bit of time in Dallas. I think it, the paper that no longer exists here um, had covered baseball a long, long time ago and, and had spent the last 35 years being really the voice of Southern California and was a hilarious guy in the press box, uh, was a very colorful writer. Um, and that comes on the heels of the uh, of Steve Hummer retiring at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And what struck me is that these are these are two guys who have both been kind of mentor like to me in some regards, and, and who I've also enjoyed reading a great regard, uh, a great deal. And uh, it just made me think that we here in Texas we um, we're still pretty privileged to be able to read you, Kevin, and uh, Tim Callishaw occasionally. <laughs> um, and the likes of Kirk Bowles in Austin and, and even Richard Justice at Texas Monthly still, um, there's a lot of institutional knowledge of, of sports in this state and the history in this state. There's great writing and craftsmanship and care and investment in the community. And, um, while I'm really sad to see those two guys leave, I'm also really, uh, thankful and grateful that we continue to have guys like you, uh, kind of manning that post out there. So thank you. That was very sweet of you to say that, Evan. I know I give Evan a lot of trouble. People on this podcast might think I don't like Evan. He's he's one of my, I don't know, seven favorite people. Oh, you're not quite that close because I've got four kids, but you are right up there. I made the top hundred. You're up there. That's for sure. That's very sweet of you to say. I will say about Mark Wicker, nobody faster. Uh, nobody better faster under deadline than Mark Wicker. Unbelievably fast. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, wedge my way through a lead and Marcus turning his in. It's finished, done, over, and better. Besides. One very, I just, I got to tell this story. One very quick story. So it, in the old, old days, you used to go, when you went to the press box, you had a hard line, a hard phone line. You had to get a phone and you signed up for a phone and everything. This is, Callie, this is before the days of Wi-Fi. Um, and, uh, you had to pay for the instrument. So we came up with the idea that what we'll do is we're just going to bring the phone from the hotel and plug it in into the hot Jack at the, at the press box. And I did this at the 2000 world series and my seatmate happened to be Mark Wicker and Mark looked down and he saw the phone with all the buttons from, of course, a Marriott, immediately picked up the phone and said, room service. <laughs> and as I as I tweeted to him this morning, uh, I think you're still waiting for that order for room service. But he just had a quick wit and saw every opportunity to make you laugh. And he did that both in print and in person. And and he was a real reminder that sports should be about compelling stories and, and fun times. And uh, we'll miss him. Yes, we will. Hopefully you won't miss us. We'll be back again next week, and we'll talk about our our Super Bowl picks then, and we'll uh, we'll tear both those teams up. So until then, everybody, we'll see you. Thanks. Bye.